Let's pray together. Our Father, we have heard the longing in John Lennon's voice for a new world, a world of peace and reconciliation where there's no greed and hunger, a world where there's the brotherhood of man. As we've listened to that longing in his voice, we know that all of us have a longing in our hearts for sin and all of its results and consequences to be removed. And so we cry out to you, come, Lord Jesus. And we pray that as now we hear your word, that it would not simply be ideas that are directed to our minds, but rather you as the living, risen Christ might come to us by the Spirit clothed in these words, that you would take hold of us again, that you comfort us with promises and breed hope, but also you would warn us, breed fear. And we pray that out of that, a growing faith would enable us to give our allegiance more fully to Jesus Christ and walk and follow him. Bless us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Did you hear the longing in John Lennon's voice? He was longing for a new world. He's longing for a world where everyone will live as one. He's, he's speaking in the midst of the Vietnam War in 1971, and he's longing for a world of peace. And he speaks in each of the verses of three things, three barriers that he sees to this new world. An otherworldly kind of religion that's not concerned for this world. An otherworldly religion which focuses merely up above and is unable to live for today and also fights over truth and breeds more and more dissension. Secondly, he's concerned about political barriers. That is, barriers that keep people out and protect other people and protecting our stuff and the dissension that comes from that. And he's thirdly concerned for possessions, and the materialist lifestyle where people are willing to do anything, kill even, to protect and to get more possessions. And he longs for life, a world where there's no hunger, there's no greed, a world that has been reconciled. And I wonder what kind of world you long for if you were to write that song. What kind of thing would you sing about? What kind of song would you sing about? Children who are starving, people who are living their lives in complete loneliness and alienation, people who are living every minute of their lives under oppression, what war brings in terms of violence and pain, cruelty, the way sin grips our own hearts, and the habits that they breed. Don't you long for a world in which those are all gone? But notice also in this song by John Lennon, and before I say that, I'll say, if you'd like a Bible, put up your hands. I forgot to tell you that. Um, and I advise you to take one if you haven't got it, because I've got it, I'm not sure if I told you that, 70 verses, and we could only read eight. And I'm only going to read 
Well, if I read 12 more, that will still be only a few verses. If I read all 70, then you're going to be go to sleep before I finish reading and not even preaching. So you might want a Bible, put it up your hand, get a Bible, and then keep it if you need it. John Lennon's longing for a better world. But secondly, and I wondered if you heard this, he also says, I'm not the only one. I'm part of this countercultural community of the 60s and 70s, and I remember those from high school. He's part of the, I'm part of this countercultural community that is already beginning to live into this new world. I'm already living out the peace and the justice that I'm longing for. And I'm wondering if you see that. He's saying, I'm not the only one. There's a whole community of us that are longing for this world and living it out. But thirdly, notice what he does, is he says, won't you come and join us? He not only longs for a new world and says, I'm part of a community that's living into that new world, he issues an invitation. Won't you come and begin to hope and long and dream for this new world? And won't you come and join us and be part of a community that is more and more living in to this new world? Well, when we look at the Christian faith, there's something about those three things in that song that define the Christian faith. But there's a big, huge difference. For John Lennon, he is only longing for this world. He is dreaming about a world in which there is no peace, in which there is peace and no war. Longing for a world that is one. He's dreaming about it. But the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter of the book of Acts, tells us the story that this world has come. It tells us that Jesus announced that the kingdom of God has come. And the kingdom of God is precisely this world that is coming at the end of history. It is a place where there will be no more war, there will be peace, there will be justice, the knowledge of God is going to cover the earth. And Jesus says, this world has come. And then Luke shows us that in the most unusual way, this world breaks in. It says a man is crucified, naked, humiliated, tortured, killed. And as he, take, as he hangs on that cross, he takes all of the sin of the world and he takes all the misery of the world. He takes everything that has come from the sinful heart of man onto himself at the cross and he takes it into the grave. And he conquers that evil and the old world has been gained victory over. But then he rises from the dead and the Bible and Luke pictures that resurrection as the inauguration of this new world that is going to one day fill the earth. The resurrection is the first step into that new world. And the promise is that that new world is going to come and fill the earth. So unlike John Lennon, we're not dreaming and imagining a new world. 
That new world is as certain as the fact that I am standing on this stage. The resurrection of Jesus means that one day the whole world is going to share in that resurrection and be renewed. Isn't that good news? That's the good news of Luke. But it continues. That time is held off for that world to come and the book of Acts shows us what is to be in between. And what is to be in between are the, two, the other two parts of Lennon's song. Number one, a community that is, receives the Spirit and recognizes the Lordship of Christ at the right hand of God. And that community already gets a foretaste of this new world that is coming and become a preview. And so this new community called church begins to live more and more into this world, uh, this new world that is coming. But they also say, won't you come and join us? Their evangelistic invitation is, won't you come be part of this new community? Won't you too come be part of this new world? Because we're not just dreaming about a new world, it's gonna come. And won't you come be part of this community? And Luke uses the term witness to describe just those two things. You will be my witnesses, meaning you will witness in your life to the reality that this world is coming and you will witness in your words to invite others to embrace Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and to become part of the kingdom of God which will one day fill the earth. So the book of Acts tells that story of the movement from Jerusalem as this community of witnesses lives more and more into that new world, invites others into it, and people begin to respond and become part of that community. But when he writes the story, he's not thinking about you first and foremost. He's not thinking about 21st century Tempe and the issues that we might have. He's writing to people who are immersed in the Old Testament. And here's what they thought. They thought the kingdom was going to come through a very powerful Messiah who would break into the scene and as he would usher in the kingdom with incredible military power. And then the nations would hear of his glory far away and there would be a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would be drawn to this powerful king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That's what the Jews were thinking. And so when Luke writes, Luke acts to tell the story of the way the kingdom comes and the way it spreads to the nations, he is writing something that would have been so difficult for people to get hold of. And he says it's true, as the prophet said, that the Jews are going to be gathered first. It's true that the kingship of Christ will spread to the nations, but it's not going to be as they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's going to be as these communities spread out across the earth, moving from Jerusalem through Judea, through Samaria, right on to Rome, and then finally to the ends of the earth in Tempe, Arizona. That's what the story of Acts is about. And it's inviting people into this community to be witnesses, to live more into this world, and to invite others into it. Now, as he tells the story, he shows how the prophets are being fulfilled, how Israel is being gathered first, 
And so for the last six chapters, as you've heard preached in the book of Acts, it's all in Jerusalem. The Jews are being gathered first, and all we have at this point is a Jewish community within a larger Jewish community, but they are following the Messiah. And so this Jewish community is now going to spread out and begin opening up to the nations. And this book, this, this section that we're dealing with today is the hinge. It's the hinge because the section in Jerusalem ends in 6-7 which says the word of God spread. And it ends the Jerusalem section and this becomes the hinge that's going to change the direction of what has been taking place and we're gonna see that. And it's all around this person named Stephen. And it begins with his witness with signs and wonders. He was a man of God's grace and power doing wonders and signs among the people. Have you noticed how many of the stories in the book of Acts begin with this? And they do a mighty sign. And though those signs are indicating that the power of God's kingdom has actually broken into history. When they heal a lame man in the temple, it says, on the new creation, there will be no lame people. Everyone will walk. I had a paraplegic friend that came to Christ, and he said to me, he said, Mike, when I get to the new earth, I'm going to run. I'm going to have legs, and I'm going to run. And I remember thinking, I hate running. I run every day, but I hate it. And I tell my wife I hate it. But he doesn't get to run. And he's gonna be given that new resurrection body and he's gonna run. And what Peter does is heals the lame man. And when he heals that lame man, he says, there is a sign and a wonder that confirms that the kingdom of God has broken into history. The book of Hebrews actually comments on these signs and wonders, perhaps in Acts, but certainly in, these early, in the early part of the history of the church. And here's what it says in chapter two, verse three and four. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts the Holy Spirit distributed. In other words, as Stephen is giving, is confirming that the power of God's kingdom, that new world, is broken into history with his signs. And it immediately raises opposition. And that's what's happened in every other story, hasn't it? Immediately raises opposition. Immediately the Jews say, or start to oppose him. No way. There's a Messiah crucified. No way it comes in this way. No way our whole story comes to a climactic moment of the shameful crucifixion. No way. And they begin to oppose him, but we're told that Stephen was able to withstand them. And as he withstands them, he makes them angrier, and they finally get a bunch of false witnesses. And if I wasn't preaching on 70 verses... I would now take you through and show how these accusations begin to change as we move through the verses. But basically, these accusations center around two things, the law and the temple. 
the law and the temple. Jesus was going to destroy the temple, and you're changing the law of Moses. Now, you're going to see why these are so important in just a moment. But if I could try to help you understand what's going on here and why these people are getting so upset. You see, the law and the temple were the dearest symbols of Israel's religion. The temple is where God dwelt. The law was shaped them as a holy people. And how dare anybody play with those things? It would be like me bringing the American flag up here, putting it down on the ground, and begin to stamp all over it and spit on it. Some of you will be horrified by that. And maybe you'd be even more horrified, I hope you would, if I took a cross or a crucifix and put it on the ground and began to trample on it and began to say curses on it, it would make you offended because that which is dear to you is somehow being tarnished. That's what they hear Stephen doing, speaking against the temple, speaking against the law. And now Stephen is going to tell a story. And in chapter 7, 50-some verses, he's going to tell the biblical story, the longest sermon, the longest speech, in the, maybe in the, in the entire Bible, certainly in the book of Acts. And as he moves through this long speech and this long sermon, he's going to tell the story in such a way, the biblical story in such a way, that when he's done, they are going to be gnashing their teeth and they are going to be angry. And only one more word needs to be spoken and then they kill him. So what in the world does he say back to them that makes them so angry? Because he seems to just be choosing some events out of the story, mainly Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And he tells, it seems like an uncontroversial story, but it's not. When you see what he's doing with this story, and we're going to look at it now, you're going to see that what he is saying is going to make the Jews exceedingly angry. Maybe put it this way. Stephen and all the Jews agreed on the Old Testament story. What they didn't agree on was how it was going to come to a climactic conclusion. And he is going to tell the story in such a way that the Jews are going to become angry. And so I'm going to take you through that story in chapter 7 very briefly. And I'm going to show six things that Stephen is doing. And I wish we could read the whole thing. Maybe if you had time this afternoon after March Madness is over. Read through Acts 7 and read through the story. But here are the six things I want you to see. First, God is the principal actor in this story. You might yawn and say, tell me something I didn't know. But this is pretty important. Because for Stephen, what he is saying is, I am telling you God's story. I am um, asking you to listen because this, he's claiming divine authority. He's saying this is the story of God. That's what's going to get them so angry. 21 times God is mentioned in this story and is the, is the subject of a verb. Now, if you ask most scholars, who's the main person in the story? They'd say, mm, maybe Abraham. He's mentioned seven times. Maybe Joseph. He's mentioned six times. Maybe 
Moses. Yeah, long time of Moses. He's mentioned 13 times. God's mentioned 21 times. God is the major actor in the story that Stephen tells. But secondly, so this is a story of God's purpose, according to Stephen. But secondly, it's a journey. Now, the whole thing is one big journey, and they never reach their destination, and Stephen is very clear about that. Now, picture the Middle East, okay? Abraham is over here in Mesopotamia. He goes up to Haran. He goes down to Canaan. And then his descendants go into Egypt. And then while in Egypt, Moses goes out into the wilderness, comes back to Egypt. And they're they're supposed to go to the land next, but they never quite make it. And you'll see this is crucial to Stephen's story. It's this long journey. But what is the destination? Where is the end point that God is taking this story? He gives us an Abrahamic promise. He says that God spoke to Abraham and said, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, Abraham. And I will punish the nations. That, uh, they, I will punish the nations. He says, but afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. The end point of the journey is a people who are holy, as we're going to see in the remainder of the story, who are living under God's law, and a people who worship God where his presence is. That's the end of the journey. And what we're going to see is they agree, the Jews and Stephen, on the end of the journey. They just disagree on what the, where that end is. And so he's going to tell this story of a journey with a promise made to Abraham. I'm going to have a people who worship me in this place and live obediently under my law. The third thing in the story, and this starts to get, this starts to, get to the heart of what's going to make him mad, there's messengers and prophets all the way through, there's messengers all the way through the story that are helping him get there, and the two main messengers are Joseph and Moses. They are the crucial figures, and they are messengers God sends to help them get to that destination. But, here's the next point, they always reject their messengers. They reject Joseph, they send him off to Egypt. They reject Moses, three times we're told that Moses, in the story, Moses is rejected. Moses is rejected. Joseph is rejected. These people, because it says the, uh, the idols you made to worship, continually reject the messengers that God sends. Now, God keeps that story going and fulfills his purpose, but they reject his messengers. And then fifth, they never reach their destination. This is complicated, but let me just say this. They move the story to the golden calf. And then from the golden calf, they then say, that idolatry that you began there continued. And they jump from there to the exile and bypass the whole land. And basically says, you're a people in exile because you've continued to worship idols. Now, he does go back and speak of the tabernacle and the temple very briefly in another way. But he basically jumps from idolatry to exile. They don't reach their destination. And then here 
is where Stephen's story starts to depart. He says this, that Jesus, or implies this, and then says it explicitly in a moment, Jesus is that final messenger that's going to complete the journey. He is the final one that God is gonna send to enable God's people to be a worshiping and obedient people. Jesus is finally going to do what Joseph couldn't do, what Moses couldn't do. He is going to establish a people that worship him and live in obedience to him before the nations. Finally, a messenger that can do exactly what God wants him to do. But he says, just like everyone else, you rejected him too. You rejected Joseph and you rejected Moses and you rejected Jesus, but in fact, Jesus still accomplished what he intended to accomplish. He actually has done what he, pro- he fulfilled the promise made to Abraham to have a worshiping, obedient people in this place. Now, can you see what Stephen has just done? Use your imagination. Think like a Jew for a minute. You're listening to Stephen. What has he just done? He's saying that temple is not the place of God's presence. It's the people of God that now worship Jesus. God's presence is in Christ and by the Spirit indwelling this messianic community. That's the worshiping people of God. You never obeyed the law. But this is now the community that lives in obedience as a worshiping people. What he is doing is saying your temple and your law is just condemning you. But in fact, the people of God are now this messianic community where Jesus himself dwells. He is the messenger that has led to this destination of the journey and fulfilled the promise made to Abraham. Incredible how he has just told their story and showed them how they missed, they missed the climactic moment of the story. They missed the final messenger. In fact, what he does is immediately accuses them. And he says, you stiff-necked people, You hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. Wow. If you can just feel the tension in the air right now between Stephen and the Jews, the church, he is saying, are the true heirs of the story. They're the ones in which the Abrahamic promise was fulfilled, not in your temple, not in your Jewish customs, but now where God dwells among his people and the law is written on their hearts. It's an incredible Incredible story, the way he tells it. Now, he looks back to the Jerusalem ministry and he says, that's why so many Jews are rejecting Jesus the Messiah. 
But remember I said the story is a hinge? It's a hinge that now moves to the next stage of God's redemptive plan. And let's see how this happens. Beginning of verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. At this point, they're not ready to kill him. They're just angry. They're probably going, what are you saying? Maybe some of them are just, I can't listen to this anymore. They're angry. They're furious at the way he's telling the story, but not ready to murder him yet. They're just angry. That's all we're told. But then Stephen does something that's going to move their anger to a murderous rage. Look what he does. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, if you're a Jew, you're mad because you know what he is saying. He is quoting from Daniel 7.14. at your second assignment after March Madness. Read Acts 7, then go back and read Daniel 7, 1-14. And what you need to know is this, that Daniel 7, 1-14 was one of the most favorite sections of all the Bible for the Jews at this time. Because what it said was, it's pictured three, four animals. And it showed us that there are going to be four world kingdoms, beginning with Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then the beastly kingdom Rome at which, under which they were living. And in the time of that beastly kingdom, says Daniel, God is going to set up his kingdom in the midst of the world and is going to crush all of those empires and his kingdom is going to fill the earth. And then in verse 13 and 14, listen, we get this image of God sitting on his throne, the ancient of days, and we're told one, what he said, like the Son of Man was led into this throne room and into his presence. And he was given all authority and power to rule over all of the nations. Stephen is saying, that's Jesus. That Son of Man that you have been looking forward to all of this time, quoting, preaching Daniel 7, that son of man is the one you crucified. And I see him standing at the right hand of God with all his authority and power. Whoa. Now anger moves to murderous rage. You can't say that about this crucified man. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. So his death, he's the first martyr. Now the word martyr comes from the Greek word marturia, which means witness. So his witness is what leads to his death. He is the first martyr, the one who dies for his witness. But look what happens. And if you miss this, you really miss what Luke is trying to do also with this story. Two things take place in these next verses. Number one, Stephen prays while he's being stoned. Look what he does. He prays almost the exact prayers that Jesus prayed on the cross. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he falls on his knees and cries out, Lord, do not hold this against them. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, is what Jesus prayed. And who is the next person mentioned after he asks for forgiveness? And Saul approved of their killing him. You know, Saul is now introduced into the story and God is going to answer his prayer in two chapters and forgive Saul. And Saul is going to become the apostle Paul who's going to dominate Acts 12, or actually Acts 13 to 28. So the first thing that this does is prayer now introduces us to Saul who's going to be forgiven. But also, keep reading, And on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostle were scattered through Judea and Samaria. They're now being driven out of Jerusalem. And what's going to happen? Well, if you flip over to chapter 11, verse 19, three chapters later, here's what you read. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to spread to the Greeks, speak to the Greeks also, telling them not about Jesus the Messiah, but Emperor, Lord Jesus. And what happens is, listen, The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The church in Antioch is formed and begins to grow. And the church in Antioch is going to be the next center for God's mission. Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent from there. Then Paul and Silas sent from there. They're going to be the center for the movement among the Gentiles. What we see in this hinge is this movement now and how God takes the suffering witness of one of his people and uses that to take the gospel to the nations. Isn't this a powerful story? Do you say amen in this church ever? (laughs) This is a powerful story. It's an amazing story, and I've only scratched the surface for you because I got 70 verses. But as we listen to this story, where do you find yourself identifying? Who are you identifying with as I tell that story? Are most of you, are you identifying with Stephen in the church, or are you identifying with the murderous Jews? Are you sitting and saying, kill them? Or are you saying, I want to be a witness like Stephen. Luke is very intentional here. And he's calling us and he's inviting us. He's saying, won't you come and join us? Won't you become part of this community, this faithful train of witnesses? And so on the one hand, I suspect every single person in this room, probably, is identifying with Stephen. And that's good. That's what Acts wants you to do. That's what Luke wants you to do. He wants you to say, look at this faithful witness. 
a witness who is totally loyal to Jesus, who is unflinching in his witness, willing to be faithful and even faithful unto death. Here is a man who took upon himself that very identity given in Acts 1.8. You will be my witness. And he takes that identity on himself. And he wants you to read this and say, I too am being called in to take this witnessing identity on myself. But of course, you're not a Stephen. At least most of you aren't. Maybe your name's Stephen. But you're not a Stephen in the sense that you're called now to preach to Jews and tell the story and so forth. Most of you don't even know Jews. You now have been put into a very different situation. Maybe you work in business. Maybe you work in the university. Maybe you work in wherever you work. You live in these neighborhoods. You are these places. And what you are being called is to bear your witness, not exactly like Stephen, but faithfully like him in your place. And Luke wants you to look at Luke and say, uh, Luke wants you to look at Stephen and be drawn into a faithful witness. But even more importantly, he wants you to be drawn into the community of which Luke, uh, Stephen, is a part. He wants you to be part of that community that says, I'm not the only one. We're living already in the kingdom of God where the spirit has been poured out and Christ is ruling at the right hand of God. We are now previews and pictures of where the history is going, pictures of that coming kingdom. And we're being called to into that community by Luke's faithful storytelling. But I ask you this. You're all identifying with Stephen. How many of you identified with the Jews as I told that story. The Jews who were continually being led astray by idolatry. The Jews who were continually not aligning themselves with God's purpose, but opposing it, even though they were God's people. The story Stephen tells is not a story about Canaanites, Egyptians, or unbelieving Americans that reject God. It's a story of the way God's people, God's people often get caught up in idolatry. Instead of aligning themselves with the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus Christ, end up, in fact, maybe contrary to what they would like, living in the story contrary and opposed to God's purposes. And I hope that we would hear the warning here. In verses 49 and 50, Stephen has quoted Isaiah 66. And he stops just shy of the very next verse, which says that the, the one that the Lord loves is the one who trembles at my warnings. The one who trembles at my warnings. And here are warnings that God's people can easily start to align themselves with the powers that stand against the kingdom when they begin allow the idols of the world to start causing them to live in a different place. Maybe some of us, if we were to return to John Lennon's song, we imagine six days of the week a world of possessions, a world of wealth and comfort, 
As we imagine that world, produced perhaps by science and technology, we can imagine and we live into that world. Or perhaps we're imagining the world that technology has given us, our cell phones, our TVs, our computers, and we're allowing that to be the real world in which we're living, and we're living out that in our daily lives. Or perhaps it's a world of entertainment, to, to quote from a book, we're amusing ourselves to death. And what, we, what we're doing is living more and more into that world. Or perhaps it's a world that says if we just had the right economic and political policies, we could make America great again. If we only did, but the thing is, it's both the right, the right and the left. Both of them are giving us these idols, not just one. Or perhaps it's freedom, where freedom is no longer freedom to serve others self-sacrificially, which it is in the Bible, but a freedom to do what I want. Are we getting caught up in a different set of stories, living in a different world, and is this corrupting our witness that one day Christ is going to come and the world that he has inaugurated is going to fill the earth. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, a man hung naked, humiliated, and tortured on a cross. That man rose from the dead, and his witnesses tell us that that was the turning point in all history. The old world was defeated. The new world begun. And as Acts opens, it shows us a new world of Christ at the right hand of God, ruling the whole creation, and the Spirit giving us this new world as a foretaste. And as we hear the good news, the good news that in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new world has begun, and by the Spirit we can taste it and live in it, then hopefully our response is one of, and as we hear Luke call us won't you come and join us and then won't you invite others and won't you live more and more by the power of the spirit into this new world hopefully your answer is yes and amen Luke says not John Lennon Luke says won't you come and join us and we say yes yes and amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, like Stephen, we want to see you standing at the right hand of God with all authority and power over the entirety of creation that belongs to you. Lord, give us those eyes that Stephen had. Enable us to see that through the cross and the resurrection, that world in which you reign as Lord has begun. Give us your spirit and empower us to live more and more faithfully into that world. Lord, may we be a people living into the new creation and inviting others to join us. Lord, it's hard. It's hard because we're being sold another story in so many ways every day of our lives. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon Jesus Christ And like Stephen, to follow that story of the Bible and to live in it.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.